Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Peeler. With me here is Ryan Scott. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll you'll know we appreciate a good Father Ted quote. Those Protestants, up to no good as usual. <laughs> so on the news this week that it's it's 25 years this year since Father Ted was first uh, aired on TV and the Irish Post Service have commissioned uh, a set of commemorative stamps. Uh, not only that, they, they did a little survey and they found uh, a third of the respondents still quote Father Ted every week. Um, so we're not the only ones who appreciate a good Father Ted quote. Um, it's deeply ingrained in the, the cultural liturgy, you might say, of, of Ireland. Its claws are as big as cups, and for some reason it's got a tremendous fear of stamps. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a really non-controversial topic, something that Christians have just agreed on uh, really simply and firmly throughout the ages, uh, the status and the role of, of the Virgin Mary. So I think as we think about this this topic, um, you know, what is the role of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary? Um, I think there's, you know, the num- number of ways we, we can approach it. I think as we've been chatting it through, it's been easy for us, maybe from our uh, more Protestant background, to have a quite uh, kind of reactionary view against some of the claims about Mary, and uh, sort of maybe dismiss them straight away and not um, kind of examine the arguments as closely as, as we could. So we're going to try and not do that uh, on this podcast. We're going to try and think through from a positive perspective, what are the best arguments uh, that our Anglo-Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox friends might make uh, about Mary. And we're going to see, um, you know, how do, how do we examine those uh, claims in light of scripture and in light of what the tradition of the church says. Uh, and also in light of some of the things that the reformers said, because the reformers in many instances, had uh, definitely a higher view of Mary than uh, what what we typically have as as evangelicals. Yeah, I remember once when I was in uh, in university many years ago, and someone made a kind of a snide remark, a bit of a joke. And I think what they were aiming at was they were trying to make fun of uh, Roman Catholic kind of hyper devotion to Mary. Um, but what they said came out a little bit crass, and someone turned around to them and said you know, you've just made a your mad joke about Jesus. Yeah, so we're definitely going to try and avoid uh, making, you know, that <laughs> your your mad jokes um, against our Lord. Um, but let's think, let's think through then some of the, the, the titles that uh, have been said about Mary, some things that have been, have been said about her. So, um, Sam, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So I guess one of the one of the really prominent titles that we hear attributed to Mary would be that she's the mother of God. So that actually comes from from Scripture. So if you look at Luke one, uh, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and Elizabeth greets her and says, "Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me?" Um, maybe a title that, that some Protestants uh, might be a little bit uneasy about, um, but certainly there's a rich tradition of of uh, referring to Mary that way in the church, and even um, referring to Mary as the the Theotokos, the the God bearer, the God birther, um, that goes all the way back to to Chalcedon, um, to the Fourth Ecumenical Council. Um, but there, it wasn't uh, it wasn't intended to be uh, an elevation of Mary, uh, so much as a clarification about who Jesus is. Um, Jesus is is one person with two natures. Um, and as a as a human, Jesus has has a a human mother, 
um, but Jesus is also is also a divine person. Um, and so according to his human nature, uh, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Jesus is God, so Mary is the the mother of God. Great. So let's go on then. One of the other um, quite interesting claims, and this this may be made about Mary, uh, is the idea that she is uh, the second Eve. So this comes from a little bit of meditation uh, on um, the history of redemption throughout the Bible, uh, and also how we approach the whole subject of typology. Um, so typology is maybe you know pictures or shadows or or types of things in the Old Testament corresponding um, or participating in things that are then revealed in the New Testament. And there's different ways of approaching typology. Some people can be very conservative about typology or very um, restrained, want their typology to be very restrained. And uh, if if you approach it from that perspective, then you'd only want to uh, recognize things in the Old Testament as types if they are explicitly referred to as types in the New Testament. So uh, Adam is clearly a type of Jesus because uh, it explicitly says in Romans chapter 5 that he is a type um of jesus so what about then um e uh you know mary as, as a second eve well that would require i suppose uh, a little bit of a broader approach to typology where we would see um see the apostles as our model and jesus as our model for how we should read the old testament as a whole so not just that we can only accept those types that the apostles themselves uh, taught but also that we can use their framework or their model for how we read the old testament as a whole so in um genesis um chapter 3 verse 15 the proto evangelium um the lord says to eve that um there will be one from your seed who will crush the head of the serpent and so all the way along throughout the whole history of the bible we're waiting for the person who would come who will crush the head of satan and who will therefore liberate the whole of creation and restore us back to a right relationship with God. The end of chapter four, um, Eve says uh, that the Lord has given me another uh, offspring, another seed, uh, which is Seth, who uh, was given in the place of Abel, uh, because Cain killed him. And so then we're looking throughout uh, chapter five of Genesis at the whole of the history of Seth's line, which of course then brings us to Noah. Uh, Noah comes along, his name means rest. And the question is, is Noah now the person who's going to give the whole created world rest, restoration, um, and bring about a new creation? And there's definitely, then whenever we get get to the flood, a decreation and recreation theme. Uh, The whole of the creation is undone in the flood. It's all kind of destroyed, and then it's remade. Noah comes out um, of the ark. He plants a garden. Uh, He's told to be fruitful and multiply. And then, of course, he gets drunk, and then, Things kind of go down, downhill from there. Why couldn't Cain be more like his brother? I don't know. Why couldn't Cain be more like his brother? Because he wasn't able. Very good. <laughs> jolly good, jolly good. Uh, I don't think I've come across that one before. I'm astounding that uh, that it's taken me so long to to get to that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, so anyway, then we have Noah uh, with his uh, whole um, line, and then eventually from the line of Noah through through Shem, isn't it Shem? I think it's Shem. Uh, we get uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the rest of Genesis plays out the rule of the promise in uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Then at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, we read that the promise would go through the line of Judah, that the scepter would not depart from Judah, uh, that the, the rulership or the kingship that God has has promised Abraham would finally rest uh, with the tribe of Judah. Then that comes up again with the covenant that God makes with David, who comes from the line of Judah. So all the way along, we're, we're, we're reading the Old Testament, and we're paying attention, where is the promise uh, where is the, the blessing? Who is the one who's going to be born? Who's finally going to crush the head of the serpent? And that, of course, brings us into the New Testament. And we get uh, the start of the New Testament from Matthew's Gospel starts with this great big long list of genealogies. And we think, why on earth is that there? Well, it's there. So we can finally see that Jesus is the one who was born of Mary, who will crush the head of the serpent. And so, yeah, in a sense, Mary is the woman who gives birth to the seed, who crushes the head of the serpent. Um, I think it's in that sense, it's, it's sort of plain enough um, that the whole purpose of God choosing the nation of Israel was finally that Mary uh, could give birth to Jesus, to give a human nature to Jesus, and that Jesus could be the true man who would finally crush the head of the serpent and done, undo the whole of the fall. And then interestingly, uh, in John 2 and in John 19, uh, Jesus calls uh, Mary woman, uh, which is a bit of a strange way to sort of address address your mother. But it may well be the case that I think that Jesus is, is saying to us, Mary is the woman who has finally given birth uh, to the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so I think, yeah, in that sense, you can make quite a good argument that Mary is actually the second Eve. Um, some of the early church fathers then they picked up on on this idea of, of Eve being the, uh, or sorry, Mary being the second Eve, as you see quite early on in Irenaeus. Um, so it's, it's an idea that, that picks up speed really quite early on in the history of the church. Um, and I think as Protestants, uh, it depends a little bit on how we do typology, but if we uh, are sympathetic or open to a more open, uh, maximalist view of typology, then I think that's definitely a type that we can see. There's an interesting section in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 that kind of touches on this. Um, Paul writes, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Uh, so Paul, Paul seems to be saying, there's a if you if you were to trace the human family back, you would arrive at at uh, at Adam, at the the first man. Um, but now in, in the gospel, we see that the uh, the new creation, the the new human race, um, the last Adam, um, comes from not from uh, Adam, but from uh, from from a mother, from from Mary. Uh, and so there's a there's an interdependence, and so that that kind of gives some some weight to, uh, to the idea of, of Mary maybe as the, as the second Eve. You know, Adam says, uh, names Eve and says she'll be the mother of all the living, uh, and then Mary is the uh, the mother of our Lord, the one who who brings um, the Savior into the world in a sense. Yeah, I think especially. Um... In you know, verse eleven it says in in the Lord some some special going on here, um, and then also in verse twelve it says so man is now born of the woman, so in a sense Mary, uh, you know, well in the in, the incarnation what does it do? The incarnation starts to bring in the whole of the new creation, um, which starts as Mary gives birth, um, to the Lord Jesus, and we said in the last episode as well Jesus inherits a human nature, uh, from Mary which again is an extraordinary privilege. You think currently about Jesus reigning in heaven. He's still the God man. He's still fully God, fully man. Uh, he still has a human nature. It's the human nature he inherited um, from Mary. 
that's right. I think we sometimes in our circles we we play up the the idea of adoption. You know, Jesus is um, is adopted into the line of David. But if you look at, you know, for example, Romans one, uh, it talks about Jesus who is the is the promised Messiah who, according to the flesh, is descended from David. Um, which I think is a vindication of that idea that uh, that Jesus takes his human nature from Mary. It's not ex nihilo. It's not some sort of heavenly flesh. It's Jesus is truly uh, from the loins of David, as uh, as the promise says. And that, I guess, that puts, uh, we'll come on to another claim then that's sometimes made about Mary, and that is that Mary uh, is the greatest of kind of all creatures. So of all those who've been created by God, of course, that doesn't include Jesus because he's the eternal son of God. As all those who have been created um by God, uh, Mary, in a sense, is the, is the kind of most exalted or most in the, the most privileged position. Uh, and Zwingli, the Protestant reformer Zwingli, said uh, that I firmly trust that she is exalted by God above all creatures uh, of blessed men or angels and eternal bliss. So, yeah, here we have Zwingli uh, offering to us quite a high uh, exalted view of Mary. And you see a lot of the same um, sorts of ideas coming up in the, in the Church Fathers uh, part of that, I, I guess, is is going back to Luke one, um, uh, where we read that that uh, Elizabeth says, "Blessed are you among women; blessed is the child that you will bear." Uh, Mary herself says, "From now on, all generations will call me blessed," and that is something that the church has always done um, over the last two thousand years. Is refer to uh, Mary as the Blessed Virgin Mary. I suppose we want to to balance that with, um, for example, in Luke Luke eleven. Um, Woman, uh, woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, to, "said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed." Uh, and Jesus said, "Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it." So I suppose we'd want to say that that Mary, Mary is blessed. She's she's privileged to have played uh, such a key role in salvation history. Similarly to the way in which you know the the apostles were blessed. You know, Jesus says, uh, ble- "You know, you're blessed." Um, he says, "You know, prophets." Uh, longed to to see the things that you see and they didn't see it um so there's a real privilege to the apostles who who uh, got to live with jesus for fr- three years they they followed him around they um they they traveled with him they they got to listen to him to eat with him to they enjoyed you know close close friendship with him um but mary's the one who got to uh to carry jesus in her womb who, who gave birth to him who raised him who um taught him all those things that, that, that mothers teach their children. And um, Mary had a, if you like, a front a front row seat to the, the earthly life of Jesus. Um, so she is she's exceptionally privileged. Um, but obviously we'd want to say that that doesn't come down to any sort of meritorious greatness on Mary's part, uh, but simply the, the grace of God, I think. Uh, I guess as Protestants, one of the, one of the guardrails that keeps us... Um, keeps us right as we think about these things is is sola gratia that, that any all the blessing and goodness we enjoy is uh, ultimately from god's god's free grace not any obligation that he owes us because of any any merits on our part uh, another argument that's i guess brought up as well is and I'm, this is what i'm still thinking through myself um uh, this relates to the idea of mary, mary as queen um, but in one and two kings, you can certainly see that um, it's not the wife um, of the king who is kind of the queen of the nation. 
uh, the kings in Israel, of course, had and in Judah had had multiple wives, and um, so that couldn't have been the case. But it was the uh, the mother who had a sort of throne alongside uh, the throne that the the king had. And often, whenever you read through one or two kings, uh, it'll mention the king and then it'll mention the mother uh, alongside. So, you know, again, I guess this goes back to how do we how do we do typology, um, and how much can we actually read into that. Uh, but maybe that is hinting towards the idea that, that Mary has this particularly uh, privileged or exalted place um, before Jesus. So another claim then that's made about Mary would be Mary as as a temple or as uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And this uh, again picks up on how do we do typology. Uh, but one of the verses that might be referenced would be the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child that will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, uh, in Luke 1.35. And so, I guess, you know, symbolically, typologically, does this pick up on the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, the temple and the tabernacle, uh, the presence of the Lord, the holy presence of the Lord overshadowing um, the area and uh, completely setting it apart as Holy. And certainly we get that sense um, later on in the Bible when the Holy Spirit comes upon us as Christians, that makes us uh, God's temple. Uh, and again, of course, uh, Jesus himself was the temple. And if you think about it from an Old Testament perspective, you know, to, to be even sort of near at the presence of the holy, to be near the presence of the temple, you yourself needed to be consecrated and to be set apart. Uh, you couldn't just be common. You, you certainly couldn't be unclean. And come before the presence of what's holy, uh, you actually had to be consecrated to be set apart. Um, and so, in this sense, you know, maybe maybe that's the way Mary was. Maybe she was, in some sense, uh, consecrated and set apart. I wonder then if there's an argument to be made uh, if Jesus is the, I guess, the true temple, um, rather than thinking of Mary as the temple or the ark. Maybe she's she's set apart like the in the way that the Levites and the priests are. Um, she's not the dwelling place of God, obviously, but um, she's set aside in service, uh, in service to it. Yeah, well, certainly she's yes, she's consecrated and set apart to, to the service of God in a really, really special way. Um, so let's go on then. We'll we'll try and um, keep going and go a bit faster here. So another claim, of course, uh, this gets into the second dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Marian dogma. This is the perpetual virginity of Mary. So arguments in favor of the perpetual virginity uh, would be. Some arguments from church history. Um, she's referred to as the Virgin Mary in the Apostles' Creed, which is a title, uh, so not sort of once virgin. And in some ways, uh, again, we can see this is a doctrine which was held to by uh, nearly all of the reformers, if not all of them. And the second Helvetic Confession of Faith, which was a widely accepted reformed confession, uh, refers to Mary uh, as the ever-Virgin Mary. So, strongly in, in that sense established by church history. Uh, there's a biblical argument in favour of it. Uh, John 19 uh, verses 26 and 27, Jesus is on the cross. Uh, again, he calls Mary a uh, woman and he entrusts uh, the care of Mary to uh, John, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. And Jewish custom, Jewish law would certainly have uh, required that it would have been children that looked after parents and again, we can see that in Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes uh, the Pharisees for um, not looking after uh, parents for the sake of giving a gift to the temple, giving a gift to God. So maybe, you know, does that prove that 
Mary actually didn't have other physical offspring. We're not sure. Uh, there's theological arguments then. Um, part of the reason why uh, we have marriage and we have sex um, is because it's a symbol. Uh, it's a mystery that symbolizes the union between Christ and the church. Uh, Mary, of course, was in that privileged position where she bore the Lord Jesus herself. And so she had uh, in her womb and she gave birth to the reality uh, that the symbol pointed towards. Um, and again, if if we buy this idea that Mary was a temple or uh, the Ark of the Covenant, then she was consecrated for a specific purpose. And so to approach something uh, that is holy, that has been set aside for a holy purpose, uh, would be to invite the death penalty. And so uh, our Roman Catholic friends would, would I think, make uh, much of that argument um, that she was set aside for that purpose. So you're saying, you know, the, the Virgin Mary, that's a, that's a title that suggests that she was um perpetually perpetually virginic um you could counter just to be a little bit uh flippant you know harry potter was still called you know the boy who lived well into his uh, his late teens he probably called it his whole life you could argue that mary's referred to as the virgin mary because uh, she was still a virgin when she became pregnant and gave birth which is uh, obviously the, the miraculous aspect of uh, part of the miraculous aspect of of jesus birth um is that Mary was was a virgin. Jesus wasn't generated the way normal human babies are are generated. So was the, there's the argument uh, Jesus entrusts Mary to uh, to the Apostle John's care. Um, you could say, oh, so Jesus is obviously an only child, and he's leaving his 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 mother, who's who's widowed and who's now uh, going to be without children to look after. He's leaving her to John. Some people have suggested that maybe maybe Jesus' brothers weren't. Uh, weren't saved yet they weren't believers and so uh, jesus wanted to secure a a believing home believing care for for his mother which is uh, plausible at any rate and an interesting argument um obviously mary and joseph were were married if you assume the the perpetual virginity of of mary then you're uh, you're suggesting that they never had uh, they never consummated their marriage um which would be unusual to say the least and certainly in First Corinthians seven, you know, Paul warns husbands and wives uh, against withholding uh, due benevolence, as um, as the man says. So it would be unusual for for Mary and Joseph to be married and not to be not to be intimate. Uh, yeah, as well. I mean, um, I guess we just come back to some of these verses in, in Matthew and Mark's gospel that talk about uh, Jesus having having brothers, and the normal word for brothers, uh, Adelphos, is used there. Uh, there was another term uh, in Greek, um, sunganese, uh, that could be used for kind of cousin or wider, um, wider relative. So I think it, it seems most likely that um, that Adelphos probably is used there, just in the natural, the natural sense of of an ordinary brother. You think as well about Luke, Luke the careful uh, historian, uh, and he he goes into particular detail whenever he says that uh, Joseph. Uh, so it was thought was the father um, of Jesus. Uh, you know, if Luke is that careful about presenting Joseph, so it was thought, as the father of Jesus, then why didn't he sort of also say uh, Jesus' brothers, so it was thought um, at the time? Uh, in terms of the, the witness of the church fathers then, um, on the whole, most of the church fathers seem to affirm the perpetual virginity of Mary. It, it shows up, first of all, in a, in a Gnostic text, 
called the Proto uh, Evangelium of James um, very early on. Uh, you have Tertullian, though. Tertullian denied perpetual virginity. Um, Origen, he affirmed it. Uh, Athanasius strongly affirmed it. Uh, and St. Basil the Great, uh, he personally accepted the perpetual virginity, although he didn't um, consider it or didn't teach it to be a dogma of the church. And then as well, uh, the development of the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary seems to uh, coincide very much with the rise of monasticism. So there were two early critics of monasticism, um, Jovinian and Helvidius, um, and they also uh, went uh, into detail denying the perpetual virginity of Mary. So it seems to have coincided with the rise of monasticism. And then some of the other early church fathers, Ambrose, Jerome and Augustine, all sort of defended um, the doctrine over and against um, those critics of it. So I think on the whole, um, personally, I think uh, I think I'm still fairly agnostic on this question of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, but on the whole, I think I'm probably lean towards not believing in it. Um, okay, so we'll touch then just lastly on the last two uh, Marian dogmas. So they would be the Immaculate Conception and uh, the Bodily Assumption of Mary. So in terms of the Immaculate Conception, uh, Luther believed in it, um, which again is something that our Roman Catholic friends love to uh, refer to. Uh, the Immaculate Conception, of course, wasn't um, declared formally to be a church doctrine until 1854 uh, by Pope Pius IX. And uh, so, it, you know, it actually fully developed very later, very uh, much later on. And even um, Thomas Aquinas denied it. Um, although the doctrine that it sort of springs from would be the idea that Mary was, was somehow sinless. Um, and again, I think this is... Um, well, I think this is an area which, as Protestants, we definitely want to depart from. Done with this sort of thing. Um, we seem to have an indication that Mary was sinful in Mark chapter three, uh, where Jesus' family, including his mother, uh, think he's insane. And in terms of the perspective of the early church fathers, we have we have multiple church fathers that uh, seem to attribute fault um, towards Mary. So Irenaeus does so, Tertullian does so, uh, Origen does so. Uh, Basil the Great and even Chrysostom, they all, um, you know, they all hold Mary in very high esteem, but they're also willing uh, to attribute some sort of sin um, or some sort of uh, fault um, towards Mary. Uh, and just also, you know, the New Testament is very clear that all have sinned uh, and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, the New Testament is a very universal and it's condemnation of, of everyone. And it never at any point sort of hints that Mary might be an exception to that person, to that um, uh, to that sinfulness. The only person that is the exception uh, is the Lord Jesus. And then, lastly, the bodily assumption of Mary, um, almost universally denied by Protestants, um, with the exception of uh, Bollinger. And I guess this is the sort of thing you know you can believe in the bodily assumption or not, uh, but certainly it's not given to us in Scripture. Uh, and so, as Anglicans, you know we we wouldn't. Uh, we couldn't ever hold this to be a doctrine that's necessary to believe in order to be saved. So I guess there's there's almost a spectrum of um, beliefs and dogmas about Mary uh, from things that we, we obviously affirm as Protestants, want to affirm the virgin birth, things like that, things that we potentially you could hold to them, but we certainly wouldn't make them necessary for salvation. And then there's things that we would uh, shy away from, like the idea of 
uh, Mary as a co-redemptrix, uh, or, or, or giving glory or praise to Mary instead of uh, instead of to God. Um, so there's a book called uh, The Glories of Mary by Alphonsus Liguori. Uh, sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation. Hope he's not listening. Who was he? It's a Roman Catholic theologian. He was he was announced. He was declared a, a doctor of the church by Pope Pius the Ninth. Um, so a, a prominent Roman Catholic writer. Uh, and in his book, The Glories of Mary, he, he says things like, um, Mary is our life because she obtains pardon for our sins. Uh, she obtains our perseverance. Mary is the hope of all the sons of Adam. Mary is the hope of all sinners. Mary is an advocate and able to save all. Mary is the peacemaker between sinners and God. Mary delivers her clients from hell. Uh, there's prayers included. He says, uh, my beloved lady, my most beloved lady, I thank thee for having delivered me from hell as many times as I have deserved it in my sins. There is obviously a, a very real idea of, of trusting Mary as a co-redemptrix, as, as one who saves alongside Jesus, even of, of giving glory to Mary for salvation, which exists in uh, certain sectors of Roman Catholicism, which uh, as, as Protestants we would want to, uh, to steer well, well clear from. Done with this sort of thing! Yeah, and in terms of that book, I mean, The Glories of Mary, like, it's a great big long book. Uh, again, it's not on the outskirts of Roman Catholic um, devotion or belief. It's right at the center. Uh, it's written by someone who's declared to be a doctor of the church. And under all of those titles, uh, you know, Mary is the hope of all sinners, an advocate and able to save all. She is the one who delivers her clients from hell. Under all of those titles, there are pages and pages and pages of prayers um, to Mary that make those statements the theme theme of those prayers. So this is really um, high devotion um, to Mary under under the the title under the sense that she is the one who delivers us from hell. She is our hope. Yeah. So it's 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 far removed, I think, from um, the New Testament understanding. Uh, the Apostle Paul said there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul would not have said that. Um, if he believed there was also this role um, for Mary. And it just reminds us as well of, uh, you know, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. What does he say? He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. It's the pagan that makes a, a, a statue of a God and falls down to it and worships it and asks the God, deliver me for you are my God. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's... Uh spoke a little bit about the five souls earlier thinking about you know soulless christus jesus is the only the only mediator the only savior and and the glory for our salvation all glory goes to goes to god alone um jesus is the is the mediator and he and he is he's our high priest you know hebrews goes to to such great lengths to to say jesus is still incarnate he still has a, a nature like ours um so he won't disown us he won't turn away from us he sympathizes with us and we can go to him when we're tempted. We can go to him when we're, when we're suffering through him. We can, we can approach the throne of grace. We don't need any other intermediaries, intercessors. I'll maybe read a, a short excerpt from uh, a genuine re reformational Anglican, uh, uh, William Claggett. He's talking about Mary and, and um, opposing kind of this worship of Mary, praying to Mary he says, now, though, in opposing their doctrine and practice, we are principally moved by the concern that we ought to have for the glory of our Creator and Saviour. Uh, yet it is some inducement to us so to do that we shall thereby vindicate the Blessed Virgin also and all the glorified saints. 
For if she knows what passes amongst mortals, she cannot but be displeased at those services that have been and still are paid to her by some of her son's disciples. And if she said anything at all to them, she, she should say to her votaries, but with greater indignation, what the servant said to St. John, falling at his feet to worship him. See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. Worship God. You know, I sometimes think about um, how we balance this sense of seeing Mary as in this incredibly privileged position, um, probably more privileged than any, anyone else in the world um, who was created by God, with this sense that we don't ultimately want to uh, make her the person that we trust in for our salvation. And it sort of occurred to me, you know, imagine uh, imagine you're Satan and you imagine you want to overthrow uh, and destroy the whole of the Christian religion. Uh, imagine you want to get people to stop worshipping God um, and to uh, trust in something else apart from God for salvation. Um, what would you do? Would you just turn up one day at... Uh, you know, St. Stephen's in, in Rome and whatever it is, uh, you know, the early, the early centuries of the church and say, I'm Satan, worship me. Or would you turn up uh, on another Sunday and you say, I'm Zeus, worship me. Both of those strategies probably wouldn't be very successful. But what you could do is you could take a look around the church and you could try and look for the person that uh, the church, the Christians, the early Christians honour um most highly that they have, they have the most amount of respect for apart from God and you could try and uh, get the early Christians to just honour that person a little bit more and then a little bit more and then say that actually this person wasn't a sinner and just exalt them more and more and more until the early Christians or the later Christians start to trust in that person uh, for their salvation and for their hope instead of God and so it makes perfect sense that 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 this would be an area that the church could fall into, that we would confuse categories uh, of between the person who is, you know, extremely privileged, extremely exalted into somebody who actually we attribute uh, things to them that should only be attributed to God. So I think we'll, we'll begin to wrap up there. I think that's a good place to try and uh, hold these things in tension. We want to honour Mary. We want to recognise that Mary uh, is blessed amongst all women she amazingly privileged position, an amazing example to us, um, but not someone that we want to ultimately trust in for our salvation. I think to wrap up, we'll um, we'll say a quick rosary, and no, we'll we'll finish by uh, I'm going to pray the the collect for for the the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We beseech thee, O Lord. Pour thy grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of thy Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion, we may be brought unto the glory of his resurrection, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>